Welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. How's everybody doing tonight? Yeah, good. Awesome. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Philippians. We're going to continue our study, which this uh, semester we are calling Citizens of Heaven. And tonight we're actually getting into why that is. So we're in the book of Philippians. Philippians is near the back of your Bible. Uh, there should be a table of contents in the front of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible at all, there's a white one around there somewhere. You can grab that. If you don't own a Bible, take that one. That's our gift. And I think in the front of that Bible, there is a table of contents as well as a table of contents with the books in alphabetical order, which is super helpful. So Philippians starts with a P-H, and uh, we will be jumping into that. But before we get started, I wanted to tell you a funny story of uh, the first time my wife and I, man, you guys are close to me. Hey. Uh, so my, my wife and I, our favorite place in the whole world is Portland, Oregon. Okay, and we've gone to Portland a bunch of times. We love it there. That's where we went for our honeymoon. And the first time we were in Portland, I don't know if you guys like to do this, if you travel much, uh, but when I travel, I like to try and blend in as much as I can. So I don't want to look like a tourist. Like, I try to, I try to, like, act and talk, and I want, like, I don't know. It's stupid. But I, I like it when people think that I'm from that place. Like, I think that's really cool. And so we were in Portland, and we were walking around, and so we had flannel and coffee, and we were trying to blend in with everybody else. And we were in a bookstore, and we were talking to this guy who wasn't from Portland, tourist. And we were talking to him for a while, and... Um, he just, in the middle of our conversation, we've been talking for like five minutes, and he goes, hey, I'm sorry, where are you from? Are you from the South? Because I, I hear this accent. I was devastated. I was just absolutely crushed. And I'm like, I don't have an accent. What are you talking about? I sound completely normal. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't know, you know, if I said y'all accidentally or... Um, you know, when I say right, it sounds kind of, I don't know what it was. I don't know what gave me away, but he knew. He had me pegged. I had an accent. And because of my accent, he said, where are you from? Where are you from? And I mean, geographically, if your life had an accent, what would it be? Would people be able to tell that you're from somewhere different? That's kind of the idea. That's what this book of Philippians really is, is driving home, is this idea that Christians should have a different accent so that when they're interacting with people, someone would stop and say, where are you from? Because you're different. The way you live your life, the way you act, the way you talk, it's different, and I want to know where you're from. So where are you from, Christian? Well, if you're in the book of Philippians, I want you to turn to chapter 3 and look at verse 20. This isn't going to be in our text today, but I want you to see this because this is important. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the chapters are the big numbers, the verses are the little numbers. And this is what Paul says, and he's talking to these Christians. He says, but our citizenship 
is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he say? Our citizenship is in heaven. That is where we are from, even though we've never been there. We are citizens of heaven. Turn to chapter 1, verse 27. This is going to start out the text that we're in today. Chapter 1, verse 27. And he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that little phrase right there where it says, Let your manner of life. That's actually in Greek, one word, one verb. It's kind of hard to translate into English. In Greek, the word is polituomai. Try and say that, polituomai. Okay, in that word is where we get words like politics, polituomai. It's the word for city. So really, the best way to translate that word is act like a citizen. It's the same word when he says we are citizens of heaven. So another way that you could translate this, your footnote might actually say that, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. What's he talking about? Our accent. Not just in the way that we talk, but our very lives should have the accent of our citizenship. And where is our citizenship according to chapter 3 verse 20? Well, our citizenship is in heaven. And now, this would probably make a lot more sense to the Philippians than, uh, than it even does to us because the Philippians, Philippi, was a city in Greece, okay? But it was part of the Roman Empire, and because of some special crazy rules, which we're not going to get into, I'll spare you that, Philippi had some special status in the Roman Empire. So if you were born in the city of Philippi, you were actually considered a citizen of the city of Rome. You were a Roman citizen. And so there would be people that grew up in this Greek city that had never been to Rome, but they knew that they were Roman citizens, and they knew because they were Roman citizens, they were different than these Greeks. And so they knew when they would walk around that they had that in their mind, I'm a Roman. And that means certain privileges for me, but that also means there's a kind of expectation for my conduct. There's a way that Romans act, and they weren't going to lower themselves and act in the way that these Greeks would. And so Paul is bringing that idea to them, and he's saying, look, who cares about your earthly citizenship? Okay, stop being prideful about being a Roman citizen. What he's really saying is, you're a citizen of heaven. And even though you've never been to heaven, you should walk around, you should act in a way that reflects that heavenly citizenship. So what does a Christian's accent sound like? That's what we're going to talk about tonight, okay? And, and I'm going to give you three things, but they all really come from one big idea. So if I was going to ask you, What should be like the one characteristic that really defines a Christian? What would you say? Love? Any other thoughts? Grace? Okay. Kind? Yeah. Maybe generous? Maybe joyful? Okay, those are all good answers. And I think there's other places where the Bible would would affirm those things. Okay? But how many of us would think that one of the defining characteristics of a Christian would be a spirit of unity with other Christians? Unity. Would that be the first thing you thought of as what would define the Christian life? Look back at chapter 1, verse 27. I'm going to read this again. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you all are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's saying, hey, conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven, and by that I mean you guys all need to be unified. You need to be standing firm together with one mind and in one spirit. So when Paul is thinking of what citizens of heaven look like, he's, he's thinking you guys are all in this together. That's his defining characteristic of Christians. Is that interesting? Would you have thought about that? So we're going to unpack that. That unity is really, and not, not necessarily the only, but in our text today, it's, it is a, a defining characteristic of Christians is a spirit of unity. Okay, so that's the first, the first characteristic, unity. And that actually makes sense if you stop and think about it. If you think about this idea that, that Christians are to be living out on earth qualities that we would find in heaven, okay, then that makes a lot of sense because you know who's in heaven? God. And you know what one of the defining characteristics of God is? Unity. Triunity. Okay, God, we, be, we believe in a triune God, which means that he is one God, and yet he is three persons that are perfectly in union with one another and are one God. And so it would make sense that if God is a unity, that his people would be unified. Doesn't that make sense? This is from John. I was just reading this this morning, and I had to throw it in there. Okay, this is from John chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. This is Jesus praying about the church. He says, I, I pray, Father, that all of these people who believe in me would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us all together, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is saying, actually, our testimony in the world is affected by how well we are all one together, because Jesus is one with the Father, and then they are one with us. And so unity is, is part of that heavenly reality, okay? So that's the first reason that unity is because God's a unity, and so we should be a unity. But then the other reason I think that Paul is saying the defining characteristic of Christians, of citizens of heaven, is unity, it goes back to that idea of, of kind of a national identity. We're all from the same place. So I don't know why this is what this made me think of, but um, in World War II, Okay, in World War II, the United States sent a bunch of soldiers to go fight in that war, okay? And so you would have all of these guys that would be together in like a platoon or a brigade or whatever, and, and what would be the composition of those people fighting? Okay, there'd be a guy from Texas, and there'd be a guy from Oregon, and there would be a guy from Wisconsin, and a guy from New York, and they would be all brought together, and they all had lots of differences, didn't they? And they were talking, they would like sound different, and they probably had different rivalries. They liked different baseball teams, okay? But in that moment, did it matter that they had all of these differences and they were from different places? No, they were fighting a war together. What matters is that they were American. And so they were, they were in it together. And the reason that I, I think this made me think of it is because it is a fight, isn't it? Did you see the language that he used? Look back. Look back in, in like verse 27. He says, that, that you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving, you are fighting together side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is, this is a fight that he's talking about. 
So we are at war, but who is our enemy? Okay, because it could be easy for us to hear that and say, okay, well then our enemy is anybody that's not a citizen of heaven. So all of those guys out there that aren't part of our kingdom, those are our enemies. And so we're all together and we're fighting them. But that's not who our enemy is. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere that our, war is, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces that are at work. Okay? Our, our enemy is the devil. And we are all fighting together that enemy, the devil. And how are we fighting for him? You know what it really is? It's a rescue mission. The devil's taken hostages. And that's our mission, to, is to strive together for the faith of the gospel, to go out into the battlefield to fight against the devil and rescue these hostages and transfer them from under the devil's rule and into the rule of Jesus, King Jesus. Amen. And so we're together in that fight. And Paul says, so it's very important that you be unified. So what does that mean? How does that apply? Well, there's, there's two things that I, that I think that really matters for us in how we live out this spirit of unity. And the first is, that would mean that there's no room for competition amongst Christians. And particularly, there's no room for competition amongst different Christian ministries. I'm glad that you guys are here tonight, okay? I think the BSM is pretty cool, all right? But you know who else I think is cool? First Baptist Overflow and Campus Outreach at The Village and Navigators and Campus Crusade and Focus. There's all kinds of Christian ministries here on campus, aren't there? Guys, we're all on the same team. And, and it would be weird, but this, this happens, okay, where if we hear like, man, Focus did this event, and they had like 7,000 people show up to that, that we would, might feel like, well, man, how come we could only get this many to come to Crave? And we would start to feel insecure. And you know what that is? That's division. That's not a spirit of unity. Then you know how we should really think about it? Praise God. 7,000 people heard the gospel over at Focus. That's what I want. That's what I'm about. That's the battle that I'm fighting. And we're fighting it together. It's like we're fighting in different battles. You know, it's like we're fighting on different fronts of the same war. But man, we're all on the same team. So you should never think, well, my church is better than that church. My pastor is cooler than this pastor. Or I'm jealous that this is happening. Who cares? We are all on the same team. And any spirit that is competitive, that is envious, man, that's not, that's not from heaven, okay? And then the other thing that that means about our unity is there's no room for fighting. There's no room for drama. There's no room for gossip amongst the kingdom of God. Actually, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, um, don't, don't sin in your anger. He says, don't get uh, sinfully angry or else you'll give the devil a foothold, is what he says. That you will give the devil a strategic gain. If you have anger in your heart towards another Christian, then you have actually just weakened our forces. And you have given the opportunity for the devil to come in and to divide us. And the devil wants to divide us. So if, if somebody hurts your feelings and you get angry and then you go tell the third person that had nothing to do with that originally what they did to you, well then you have just caused weakness in our front. And so Paul's saying, don't do that. Be together. Be one mind. Strive together. Be unified. That's why, like, like Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, and look, we're a, a community of people that have been saved from sin. We are all sinful people. So we shouldn't be surprised that people screw up and make mistakes. You shouldn't be surprised when you sin against somebody else, okay? We are, we are broken people that Jesus is fixing, okay? So there's going to be stuff that happens. 
And the fighting is for unity in the midst of that. So Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Just the two of you. Don't tell somebody else. Okay? Or don't just sit there and, and be angry at them. Be divided against them. But go and tell them. And he says, and if they listen to you, then you've gained your brother. So Jesus is saying, Christians should be working to be unified and be gaining one another, to stay together. So that's the thing, that that's a spirit of unity, okay? But this, it gets cooler than that. So the first is unity. The second characteristic of Christians is fearlessness. So look back at verse 27. He says, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay, do you hear the war language? We're engaged in a fight. And he says, I want to hear that you are not frightened of those people that you're fighting against, of those, of those spirits that you're fighting against. So how can he say that we should have no fear? Well, look at the rest of verse 28. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. So he's saying, be uh, fighting, but don't be afraid of the fight. Because the war's already over. They are already destroyed, and you are already saved. That's what he's saying. So we're going out and we're going into this fight, yes, but, but the conclusion has already been determined, and so we don't have anything to fear. And the more we go out in that fearlessness, the more we go out in that faith that this is already over, the more obvious it is that Jesus is risen victoriously and our enemies are already defeated. So the more we can have a fearlessness about ourselves that marks our community, the more the gospel is, is testified to. So again, I don't know, I was in like a World War II kick when I was studying through this stuff, which is weird for me. I usually hate that stuff. And you probably do too, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you a story. So there was, uh, anybody know what the Battle of the Bulge is? You heard of that? Okay. The Battle of the Bulge was um, this really, really big fight towards the end of World War II. And actually what happened was the allies, our, you know, our team, the good guys, um, they, were, they were camped out in Europe and the Nazis uh, sprung an attack on the allies. They kind of saved up all of their forces and they sprung this really big attack and it was really, really bad. And for a while, the allies were caught off guard and it looked like they might lose and, and things would go really, really bad. But actually, after, not long after that, the allies were able to like rally everybody together so much so that it turned into this giant bulge of allied forces. That's why it's called the Battle of the Bulge. And so they, they actually turned it around and came back at the Nazis and totally kicked their butts. And, and really, after that, the Nazis were finished. Okay? And a lot of historians look at that and they say, that was the turning point in the war. This is what one historian said. He said, that victory cost the Allies 80,000 casualties. Okay? It was the worst battle that they had. Okay? Killed, wounded, captured, missing. It was the largest land battle in Western Europe in World War II and the last desperate, mad effort of Hitler to stave off defeat and ruin. And they lost. Five months after the Battle of the Bulge, Hitler killed himself. And like two weeks after that, the Nazis totally surrendered. That was it. But there was still five months and longer, okay? The historian goes on, he says, much very hard fighting remained after the Battle of the Bulge. 
But the outcome of the war was all but certain. And I want you to think that's where we are right now. The cross was the battle of the bulge. And even more, it looked like a loss for the disciples. It looked like for a, a loss for the kingdom of God. When our king, Jesus, was captured and killed and nailed to a cross and laid in a tomb, that looked like we were losing. But that was actually the means that God used, and God rallied all of his power behind Jesus, raised Jesus from the dead. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, the devil knew that his last mad, desperate effort to get victory against God had totally failed. The devil knew that, that from that point on, it was over. Okay? But there's still much hard fighting that's left. So we know that we've already won, but we can't quit. We have to go out and we have to kind of pick off these guys that are, that are holdouts. And we have to go and rescue those hostages. But we know that the war is over. And so Paul is saying, you can be totally fearless. You don't have to be afraid. Anything bad that comes, you know that Jesus has already risen from the dead. And you know that if you believe in Jesus, no matter what happens, you will be risen from the dead too. Even if you die, death clearly is not permanent for those who believe in Jesus. Amen? So no matter what bad things happen, you have the resurrection and eternal life to spend in the presence of God in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So who cares if somebody makes fun of you in class for being a Christian and sharing your faith? Who cares if your parents are upset because you would rather spend spring break going on a mission trip than on vacation with them, okay? Those things we don't have to be afraid of. We don't need to have fear because everything turns out okay in Christ. Don't be jerks to your parents. Don't hear me say, okay, but you get what I'm saying. We can be a fearless people. And there's all kinds of implications of that, okay? But that gives you encouragement to be brave. And Paul is saying that when you are brave, not just should you be brave, but when you are brave, your bravery alone testifies to the gospel. So we should be a people that are marked by fearlessness. And lastly, we should be a people that are defined by selflessness. Okay? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do you hear the unity language in that again? He's bringing it back. And so he's saying, This is one more implication of that unity. Okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time covering these verses because these verses are really setting up for the verses that follow after that, and Stephanie is going to be talking about that next week. Um, the verses that follow this are actually probably a song, an ancient hymn, uh, an ancient Greek hymn. So you could think of this as like our national anthem, the song that follows that we'll talk about next week. So come back next week. But this is setting up for that, okay? He's saying that we should um, not do anything out of selfish ambition, 
and that we should not look only to our own interests, but we should also look to the interests of others. That's what citizens of heaven look like. Okay, we are not only concerned with ourselves, but we are also concerned with other people. And look, I, when I was thinking about this, I was, you know, maybe I've just been really blessed. I've been in some very good churches, okay? And as I've been in those churches, I have not really seen uh, this being a problem of people that are actually Christians being super selfish. And, and I think that makes sense, you know, that if you are actually a Christian, what you believe is that Jesus gave everything that he had to help you, okay? That whole thing where he died on the cross, that was him giving up what he was entitled to so that you could have eternal life. So Jesus, our God, gave everything that he had for our good. And so if you even get that the littlest bit, I think it will be a natural overflow for you to be like, yeah, I could sacrifice a little bit for this guy if he needs something from me. Okay, I think if you're really a Christian, this should be fairly obvious that you should help other people selflessly. I haven't seen that to be a huge problem. Now we could all be encouraged, but, I, you know, in the church that I'm in now, it certainly is, is the case. But I do think where we could be admonished, where you guys, where I could maybe encourage you a little bit, is not that, hey, you really need to be more selfless. I think you do that well. What I think you need encouragement is you need to ask for help more. Does that make sense? The citizen, and, and again, you have to hear this in the unity language that Paul is talking about. This is what your whole community should look like, is one where people are helping each other selflessly. But I think that a problem that I do see in the church, and this is especially a problem with younger Christians, is that we won't let people know when we have a need. You know, he says, don't only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, you know how other people know what that interests, needs, you know how other people know what the needs of others are? Other people have let their needs be known. But there's all kinds of reasons that we won't talk about what we need. One of it is that we're not actually in unity with the body of believers. We're not actually walking very closely with anybody else in our churches enough that they could know if we had a need come up. Okay, we're, we're so isolated or individual. And yeah, maybe you go to church on Sunday, but nobody actually knows who you are and nobody knows what you need or anything. You just don't have that kind of close relationship with anybody. And so nobody knows if you need anything. Then the other thing is, man, to admit that you have a need is to admit that you're not as awesome as maybe you wish you were. Or you're not as strong as you thought you were. Or you're not as smart. You're not as good. Or you're not as powerful. To admit that you have a need is to admit weakness. To admit that you have a need is to admit that you need help. And sometimes that's just, I mean, I know that's even true for me. That hurts to say that I need help. But if you never admit that you have a need, then nobody can ever meet your need. And all kinds of weird things happen with that. I mean, and then that, like, creates room in your heart for bitterness because you're like, nobody really loves me. Nobody knows how to love you because you haven't said that you need love. I always tell this to the guys that I meet with. If I ask you how you're doing and you're saying, okay, you say you're fine, I'm going to believe you because I don't walk around assuming that people are lying to me all the time. Okay? But if you never share what your needs are, then nobody's ever going to meet your needs. And that's bad one, because if you have needs, they're not getting met. Okay? And actually, you know, tie this back to the last point. If you have confidence that in your community, in your church, your needs will be met, you know what that creates? Fearlessness. 
I'm a lot more confident to take risks because I know that my brothers and sisters in my church are not going to let me down. Okay? So I can, I can take risks. I can step out there in faith because I know that not only does God have my back, but all these guys that are members of my churches with me have my back. Okay? So me letting my needs be known and living in a way with other people where they can help me, they can actually help me, that gives me confidence in life, okay? But the other thing is, if you don't share what your needs are, then you are actually preventing the community, the kingdom of heaven, from looking like the kingdom of heaven. Because if nobody is talking about what their needs are, then nobody can meet those other people's needs, and so there's not a community of love and selflessness that's created in the church. It's just a community of self-reliance. And everybody that pretends like they're okay all the time. You know how you can stop that kind of hypocrisy? is by admitting that you need help and asking for help. But the only way that you can be in that community is you've got to press into, you have to be with other Christians closely. But just imagine, okay, just imagine if that was the community that you were a part of. If that was our community, if that was the way that we treated each other at the BSM, and if that was what your church looked like, if it was a church where everybody really felt like they were all on the same team, and there wasn't gossip, and there wasn't fighting, but there was a spirit of working together, of peacemaking, and of, of being a part of this common shared mission. Imagine if that was our community. And imagine if we had a community where, where we all took such good care of each other that people felt like this crazy kind of boldness, that nothing was, was impossible. Man, if God has really laid it on my heart to go share the gospel in an unreached uh, region of some closed country. I know that that could happen because these people are with me and they could, they could make it happen. They could help me make it happen. I wouldn't be afraid to go do that. Imagine if we had a community where somebody has something bad happen to them in life and you just see everybody springing up and, and doing what they can to help out that brother or sister. Imagine if that's what our community looked like and it was on full display. It was out in the open. And somebody who's not a believer of Christ is in the room when something like that goes down. If your friends that are, that are here on campus that don't believe in Jesus, they see you interacting with other friends that way, what are they going to think when they see how different you look? They're going to say, man, where are you from? Because I want to go to that place. I want to be a part of that kingdom. So I pray that we can all work together to that end. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would use this word to make us unified. As you are unified. Jesus, as you said, that you are in the Father. The Father is in you. You have sent your spirit. Both the Father and the Son have sent the spirit to be in us so that we can also be in one spirit and one with you. Lord, please don't let anything screw that up. Please don't let our pride get in the way of that. Please don't let the devil get a foothold as we're angry. Please don't let our own uh, self-reliance or fear cause us to be anything less than what we are, a unified kingdom under King Jesus. God, would you use this word? Would you use our discussion in these groups? Would you use the churches that these men and women belong to to create that spirit? God, I pray for all of the ministries that are serving on this campus. Would you bear fruit? in those ministries. God, if it was just our job to pray for them, 
and it was their job to see an abundant harvest of salvation, would we be totally thrilled at that? God, would you save lost people? Would you rescue the hostages on this campus through any means necessary, even if it's our own? And would all of that be to your glory? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.